All right, let's see. Let's make uh, the teenagers tonight group number one. So if you are male or female, but you are, uh, what have I been doing, 18 and under, I think, 18 and under, you are group number one. All righty, let's have the the, uh, uh, men be group number two. So that would be men 19 and over, and then uh, ladies will be group number three, and that would be the ladies 19 and over. So teenagers group number one. And uh, men group number two, ladies group number three. All right, so go ahead and turn your Bible, please. Group number one, teenagers, to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter number three. Lamentations chapter three. And then men, group two, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, please. 1 Corinthians 10. And then ladies, group three, Hebrews 10. So teenagers, Lamentations 3, men, 1 Corinthians 10, ladies, Hebrews 10. We're going to talk first of all tonight about God is faithful. Now I realize that all three of these words tonight, you know, we were talking about the unity of God. You might have said, well, I'm not real sure what that concept is. And a number of other, even even sovereignty, even though you know the word, you might say, I'm not really sure what that means. But when I say God is faithful, God is gracious, God is merciful, God is love. You might easily say, I got that, okay? We're good, so I'm just going to take a little nap here. I would, uh, I would urge you not to take a little nap here because, first of all, it'd be easy to take a nap because I am going to do a lot of reading, all right? And we're not going to be here a long time when I say a lot. Oh, no, 40 minutes. No, I don't think so. But what I'm going to read, I'm going to read slowly, and it does take some very careful listening to comprehend some phenomenal concepts, especially as we get into grace and mercy, just blows me away what I see here, and I hope it's a blessing to you. I have tried to diversify each week. In other words, I have tried not to rest too heavily on any one commentator. We're using, using basically eight commentators. I started with, with uh, seven and then uh, uh, picked up along the way a book by A.W. Tozer on the attributes of God. And, and since that's what we're studying, I threw him into the mix. And, uh, but I've tried to, to, if we have three topics, you know, two from this commentator and three from this commentator on another topic, but it just so happens that the ones we're going to talk about tonight are not covered uh, in, in three or four of the commentators we've been using, but they are covered more extensively in a couple of the others. So just to explain, uh, as we go, we're going to rely heavily on um, two of the commentators and then throw a couple of the others in. Just, you, you probably don't even care, but I'm just explaining up front, okay? I will say this about me reading to you from these books. It is uh, one of our great weaknesses, yes, in America, but, but more specifically in Christianity, that we do not read. We do not read. And that's a shame, and that is a weakness on our part, because we're never going to know the truths that God has for us if we do not constantly educate ourselves. And there is so much available to be read by people who've known God for the last 2,000 years and wrote and wrote and wrote. And so I'm going to draw it out and share it with you, and I hope that you will have the character to let it strengthen you and strengthen your faith. All right, so 
Faithful. God is faithful. Simply meaning God is completely reliable and he will always be true to his own character and true to his word. God is faithful. Now that is extremely important. And yet we don't comprehend. We are so used to compromise and we live our lives totally expecting Can't you fudge a little bit? Can't you make an exception? And we've seen exceptions made so much that we don't even think that there is a character that exists that doesn't budge. I can tell you, if all men failed, and of course, compared to God, all men do fail, but if every person you ever met fails to be true to his word, God is faithful. He's completely reliable. He will always be true to his own character and true to his word. All right, group number one, you're in Lamentations. Uh, All three of these verses are pretty familiar, especially the first two. Lamentations 3 and verse 23. Lamentations 3 and verse 23. Teenagers, ready? They are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. That ought to be a song, you know? Anyway, all right, now, uh, men, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Ready? There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Very good. And um, that gets twisted a lot, but the, uh, the statement that God will never give you more than you can bear, whether or not that's an accurate statement, that is what, what people base it upon. Um, Hebrews 10, verse 23 that would be the uh, ladies. Hebrews 10, 23. Ladies, ready? Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. All right, so Lamentations 3 said, Great is thy faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 said, God is faithful. Hebrews 10 says, He is faithful that promised. God is always completely reliable. He will always be true to his own character. He will always be true to his word. He cannot vary. He will not vary a single bit. All right, let me start with John Gill tonight. Faithfulness is essential to God. Without it, he would not be God. To be unfaithful would be to act contrary to his nature. To deny himself. An unfaithful God would be no God at all. Let me say, as I read, I pause, not for effect, but to give you a chance for the previous statement to soak in So before I go to the next one. All right? Harold Wilmington. God's faithfulness refers to his self-loyalty and his loyalty to his entire creation. Let me pause here for a second. What is God's loyalty to his entire creation? This is why the laws 
of nature and of science do not change because God is faithful. It's one of the things that as people ponder the existence of God, it's remarkable to me, to me that uh, this doesn't get more attention. If somebody really wants to know that there's a God, and to be more general, as they say, a designer, how can you have a system of man's origin that is based on chance, randomness, and yet all of these laws that all of, I mean, your computer, your car, your furnace, all these things, your, your lights, they all bank on the fact that the laws of nature never change. And you know what? The laws of nature never do change. And that's true because God is faithful. God is faithful to his creation, okay? We're continuing with Harold Wilmington. He will not, indeed he cannot, change his character nor fail to perform all he has promised. Okay, and here comes A.W. Tozer. Upon God's faithfulness rests our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as he is faithful will his covenants stand and his promises be honored. Only as we have complete assurance that he is faithful may we live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come. Listen, I'll just say this and then we'll move on to the next attribute of God. Most of the time when a person struggles with the assurance of their salvation, what they're really struggling with is knowing that God is faithful. Knowing that God has promised. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. You leave the matter of your salvation with him. He will take care of the rest because he said he would. If you really come to understand and believe that God is faithful, you will have perfect assurance of your salvation. And so that's a very, very important attribute of God for us to ponder, to study, to believe. All right, God is gracious. Group number one, Exodus 34. Group number two, Psalm 103. Group number three, 1 Peter 2. Okay, teenagers, Exodus 34. Men, Psalm 103. Ladies, 1 Peter 2. While you're turning, let me read to you a very simple definition. And these definitions, these are my wordings. They're not meant to be profound. They're meant for, for, for us all to have a simple understanding of what we're talking about here. So God is gracious. It means that it is God's nature and desire to bless and help the undeserving. To show his goodness and give his help to those who do not merit it in any way. All righty, Exodus 34, that should be the teenagers, Exodus 34, verse number 6, Exodus 34, 6. Ready? And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. 
Now, good job, and teenagers, keep your finger right there because you're reading that again on the next point, all right? Psalm 103, that would be the men, group number two. Ready? I'm sorry, 103, verse 8. Psalm 103, verse number 8. Ready? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. Now, again, both these verses can be used as proof text for grace and mercy. As we're going to find out in a second, grace and mercy are so um, connected. They're inseparable. Nevertheless, they have distinct definitions, and so we're going to hit them both here within a couple of minutes' uh, time span. Ladies, 1 Peter 2, verse number 3. 1 Peter 2, verse number 3. Ready? If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. All righty, let me read you what some men have to say about this. And Mr. Tozer's is a little bit longer on this one, but I think it's worth your, your listening. Harold Wilmington says, grace is God's unmerited favor. That's probably the best known definition of grace. God's mercy allows him to withhold merited punishment. God's grace allows him to freely bestow unmerited favor. Here's what A.W. Tozer says. In God, mercy and grace are one. But as they reach us, they are seen as two. Related, but not identical. As mercy is God's goodness confronting human misery and guilt... So grace is his goodness directed toward human debt and demerit. It is by his grace that God imputes merit where none previously existed and declares no debt to be where one had been before. Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. It is a self-existent principle inherent in the divine nature and appears to us as a self, now don't get lost in the big words, appears to us as a self-caused propensity to pity the wretched, spare the guilty, welcome the outcast, and bring into favor those who were before under just disapprobation. Now, big words in there. It is God's nature. The desire and the character are within himself. Nobody has to talk him into this. God, be gracious. It is his nature to see someone who doesn't deserve it and be good to them. Listen again. I love his descriptions. A.W. Tozer. I just, if I'm going to be envious of somebody, he's, he's going to be him. He just, he just, he, amazing. Amazing mind and amazing ability to express just tremendous concepts. But a, self, a self-caused propensity to pity the wretched Spare the guilty. Welcome the outcast. That's God's grace. I love that. J.M. Pendleton. Grace always implies. Oh, no, I didn't finish. I didn't finish the last one. I'm sorry. 
We're still on A.W. Tozer. It's use, talking about grace, it's use to sinful men is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So when we're all there in heaven, none of us will deserve it. None of us will have merited it. So no matter where you look at a human being who was saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, every last one of us is one more example that God loves to give good things to people who don't deserve it. Now you say, well, if we're all undeserving and God's gracious... How come everybody isn't saved? And the answer is because we have the choice. I don't know why we do it, but we have the choice to reject God's grace. But God's grace, and I realize we're, we're, we're getting on the edge of the whole, you know, unconditional election and... and uh, um, you know, irresistible grace and all that, and I reject all of that as false doctrine. God's grace is for everyone. And the only reason no one, anyone does not receive it is because they choose to not receive it. All right, now we're to J.M. Pendleton. Grace always implies unworthiness in its recipients. They are unworthy because they are sinners. Their sinfulness creates their unworthiness. If saved, they must be saved as unworthy and therefore saved by grace. The capital fact of the gospel is that grace reigns in the salvation of the unworthy. God is faithful. God is gracious. Let's go thirdly to God is merciful. All right? So group number one, you're going to stay right there in Exodus 34. Group number two, men, you're going to turn back to Psalm 136. Even though we read it, I still wanted it stay, I want it stated as a proof text in this part of the message. And then group number three, ladies, you've got to do all the work just like real life. Luke chapter 6, all right? Exodus 34. For the teenagers, Psalm 136 for the men, and Luke chapter 6 for the ladies. God is merciful. And here's our introductory statement here. It is God's nature and his desire to pardon the transgressor. To forgive the guilty. To give relief to the suffering even when their suffering is of their own making. And that is a very basic explanation of the grace of God. All right, so group number one, teenagers, Exodus 34, verse number six, same exact verse, but it states both, and so we're going to read it again. Let's read it. Ready? Exodus 34, six. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering 
and abundant in goodness and truth. All right, now, uh, men, you're in Psalm 136, verse number 1. Psalm 36, verse number 1. Ready? Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Very good. And ladies, you're in Luke chapter 6. Luke 6 and verse number 36. Luke 6, 36. Ready? Be ye therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. All right, now listen carefully because we're going to make the distinction here between mercy and grace. And I think this, to me this is, this is very, very interesting. Mercy is that eternal principle of God's nature that leads him to seek the temporal good and eternal salvation of those who have opposed themselves to his will, even at the cost of infinite self-sacrifice. God's mercy is optional in that he is in no way obligated to save sinners. However, he chooses to do so. A.W. Tozer, listen to this again. As God's judgment is God's justice confronting moral inequity. So mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. Now listen to this next paragraph. This makes the gears turn in my head. I hope it does for you too. Were there no guilt in the world, no pain, and no tears. God would yet be infinitely merciful. But his mercy might well remain hidden in his heart, unknown to the created universe. No voice would be raised to celebrate the mercy of which none felt the need. And let's wrap up this paragraph in this statement. This is unbelievable. It is human misery and sin that call forth the divine mercy. Okay, so I, I, I try never to go down the road of if Adam and Eve have never, had never sinned, because it didn't happen. But I'm going to go down that road for a second. What he's saying is if Adam and Eve had never sinned, God would still be merciful, but we'd have no reason to know it. That's incredible, isn't it? And it's only man's sin and and the resulting misery that call upon God's mercy. I'm not glad for sin. I'm not glad that I'm a sinner. I'm not glad that Jesus had to suffer for my sin. But I am glad to see the mercy of God poured out for me and for you. Praise the Lord. J.M. Pendleton. While grace regards men as unworthy, mercy contemplates them as miserable and wretched. Thank you, sir. Mercy, therefore, means all that is included in pity, compassion, and similar terms. God's mercy will be glorified in the salvation of unnumbered millions 
in heaven. Um, we, we don't even begin to comprehend the mercy of God. If we have a sense of justice, when we see a criminal set free, we go, that's not fair. And even in our society, and I understand this is a little different because we're talking now about law enforcement and the, you know, the judicial system and so forth. So, but still, there's something in our nature that even when we see somebody who is guilty and they say they're guilty and it's obvious they're guilty and we see them be very, very sorry. And we see mercy extended. Now, again, within the judicial system, there, there shouldn't be room for that. But there's still something in us that says, I don't care if you're sorry. I, I tell you one that really, you know, always, always bothers me is the home invasion that took place in Cheshire. That has to be, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now, maybe not that long. And to me, all those guys should have been fried. So, all right, so I just tapped into all of our, and and again, we're talking about the judicial system, and I don't think there should be any wiggle room in there. So it's, it's it's not a super great illustration, but what I'm trying to bring out is the fact that we all, as believers in justice, and rightly so, when we see mercy applied, we're like, that's not right. Okay, you're right, but understand. Everyone who gets to heaven, who goes to heaven, will be there only because of mercy. And so we can look at all of ourselves and say, that's not right. But look in the mirror. That's not right. I shouldn't be here. I revolted against the creator. You think about the most egregious demonstration of rebellion. And that's what we did to God and worse. When I, when I used to preach at the, um, I forgot the name, Lincoln Hall. And those guys, you know, they were all very familiar with street terminology. I would, I would get pretty descriptive in, uh, in how egregious our sin was to God. And even they'd be like, whoa, dude, you shouldn't say that. Yeah, but that's what we did to him. That's how, that's how badly, the, look, there's no, there's no depth of wickedness that I could use. It wouldn't be appropriate from the pulpit, but I'm saying there's no description that I could use of my rebellion and yours that would be overstating how horribly revolting our sin was and how angrily we turned our back on him and showed our resentment to him. And we're going to be in heaven. That's mercy. 
Every one of us, if we had been treated the way that we treated God, we'd be so caught up in anger. And to think that we would have the ability to obliterate and cause pain and suffering. And and God said, I'm going to make a way. I'm going to make a way for you to be forgiven. That's just unbelievable. And the only reason we don't get that is because, to be honest with you, even though we're saved, we still think we're pretty good. We don't realize just how badly we revolted against our maker. Let's go to the last one tonight. We're done. Love. This is the very last attribute of God that we'll discuss. Love. All right. So group number one, teenagers, go to Jeremiah 31. Men, boy, you got the easy one this time. John 3. We couldn't talk about the love of God without reading John 3.16, right? Ladies, 1 John 4. 1 John 4. Love. God is the source of all true love. And love is an indispensable trait of God. God's love in no way conflicts with any of his other attributes. Now, I'll be honest, in these uh, uh, men's theologies, systems of theology, and I think you'll see it a little bit in the quotes that I give you, there's a little bit of a resistance on this matter of, of love. Not that they hesitate to say that God is love, but that a lot of error has come out of this statement, God is love. As if, God is love, and that's all he is, and anything that I perceive as not being love is not of God, because God is that love is all God. So in other words, God is love, and love is God. Well, that's not an accurate statement the way I just said it there. But there's some people who take it to mean that, that God is love, and love is God, as if that's all that God is. So God can't be, as we talked about last week, a God of wrath. Because that conflicts with God is love. All right? It's, it's a little bit of, wow, a lot of thinking right there. Uh, so I'm going to try not to go too deep into it. Maybe some of you want to consider for yourself. Anyway, Jeremiah 31, verse number 3. Teenagers, group number 1. Jeremiah 31, verse number 3. Ready? The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. All right, men, boy, you you got the easy one tonight. John 3, verse 16, ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Very good. And then, if, if, if your mind didn't first go to John 3.16 as a proof text for God is love, it may have gone to 1 John 4.8, and that's where the ladies are. 1 John 4.8, ladies ready? He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. All right, let's read, first of all, Harold Wilmington. Love is that divine attribute that causes God, the creator of all things, to give of himself to his creatures. This is the most universally known and universally misunderstood attribute of all. Millions have simply equated love with God, thus weakening or totally denying 
his other perfections. God's love cannot be separated or isolated from his holiness and hatred for sin. Now, I read that and I thought, well, Mr. Wilmington seems to have a little bit of a problem with, with, with the love of God. It was just my initial thought. And I was very surprised to hear A.W. Tozer echo his thoughts. A.W. Tozer. The words, God is love, mean that love is an essential attribute of God. Love is something true of God, but it is not God. He said, well, wait, wait a minute. You're messing with my head. Okay. They are addressing maybe sort of a 60s, hippie, feel-good, Jesus freak, love is all you need concept. That, hey, all God is is love, baby. He's nothing else. And I think both, I know that A.W. Tozer pastored in the 60s. And uh, I I believe, you know what, I, 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 I believe Harold Wilmington is still living. I may be wrong about that. But I do, he's been a scholar and was through the 1960s. So you understand they may be actually addressing that whole culture, that whole movement that said, man, don't talk to me about anything but love. God, if you're going to talk about God, it's all just love, baby. That's it. So this is what they're addressing here. That God is love and love is God, end of story. He's nothing else. He's not judgment. He's not uh, justice. He's not wrath. None of those things. Now, love doesn't clash with any of those things. That was the unity of God that we talked about several months ago now, which all of God's traits fit together perfectly and none of them uh, 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 conflict. None of them conflict with one another. Okay, so... Love is something true of God, but it is not God, A.W. Tozer says. It expresses the way God is in his unitary being, as do the words holiness, justice, faithfulness, and truth. The love of God is one of the great realities of the universe, a pillar upon which the hope of the world rests. But it is a personal, intimate thing, too. God does not love populations. He loves people. He loves not masses, but individuals. He loves us all with a mighty love that has no beginning and can have no end. All right, I'm going to read one more quote we're going to be through. Before I do, um, this one's from Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge, he just really, he goes deep into all the the, uh, false ideas And then gives you the truth. He's a tough guy to read, Charles Hodge. Brilliant man. But in this, I'm just two sentences in here. He is addressing the false idea that God's love is simply defined as mechanical. In other words, God has no passion. God has no feeling for you. It's just an official, yes, I love the world, so do this. And he explains that in very, 
you know, philosophical and, and critical terms. He quotes all kinds of philosophers on the idea. And then he says, that's a bunch of nonsense, basically. He says it in very fancy words. That's a bunch of nonsense. So what I'm about to read is part of his response to that idea that God is just a mechanical, I love you in an academic way, all right? Charles Hodge says of God's love, love of necessity involves feeling. And if there be no feeling in God, there can be no love. We, I love this statement. We must believe that God is love in the sense in which that word comes home to every human heart. I love that. God is faithful. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is love. And that's the end of our talk of God's attributes.